0: I'm John Bataki, and welcome to best one since the next one, the podcast that jumps a dirt bike from the top of a mountain and crashes straight through the side of the speeding train of genre entertainment and the fandom it inspires today in the pod, your mission should you choose to accept it is to sit back and relax as we discuss the mission Impossible franchise as a whole and break down the movie event of the summer. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. You have to say the full title or Tom Cruise appears and punches you in the neck. Uh, Later on in the show, we're going to attempt an impossible mission of our own by ranking the opening themes of each film in the franchise. Let's bring on our guests He's uniquely trained and highly motivated, a specialist without equal, immune to any countermeasures. There is no secret he cannot extract, no security he cannot breach, no person he cannot become. He has most likely anticipated this very podcast and is waiting to converse in whatever direction we move. He is the living manifestation of destiny, and he has made this episode his mission. It's Mo Shafiq, everyone. Welcome back.
1: (laughs) What an honor to be uh, described in the same uh, way that our Lord and savior, Ethan Hunt has been, I really, I, I, you know, so small little sidebar. I do think that Shay Wiggum's description of him on the plane at the beginning of dead mission, impossible dead wrecking. part one is equally as impressive. basically saying like, unless you have staked him in the heart, in the open heart, do not consider him dead, which let's put a pin in that because we have to talk a little bit about a lot of the, the illusions and sleight of hand in this movie.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll come back to that much later. And some of the some of the Messiah complex of Ethan Hunt that you've alluded to already, we'll get back to that as well. But um, let's start at the beginning of it then. And just, you know, what has Mission Impossible as a franchise meant to you over the years?
1: You know, it's, it's kind of crazy. I was thinking about this recently because I actually haven't seen a lot of Brian De Palma films. I, I can probably count on one hand the amount of films of his that I've seen. And Mission Impossible 1 is a weird movie for a... It is. 12 year old (laughs) (laughs) 12 year old that i was when i saw it in theaters to become obsessed with um you know it's become a franchise but that first one is is i mean i know everyone jokes on part two but mission one is far weirder than you know as far as an entry point is concerned to the rest of them um it's so specific it feels borderline austere um, compared to all the other ones, and uh, I don't know. I was just obsessed with it. the 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 score, the soundtrack in particular, um, the filmmaking, the twists and turns, and also the media frenzy around it. I remember being like, definitely incensed that like people were making jokes about how complicated the movie was. I remember like Jay Leno on the Tonight Show being like, "Oh yeah, it's the hardest movie to, to understand." You're crazy for that, Jay. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Infuriating because I was like. What's so complicated about this movie? Like literally, like, uh, and that was just its 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 uh, legacy for a couple of years was like an unnecessarily convoluted movie. And like, I'm I'm sitting here watching Dead Reckoning Part One, and being like, I hope the normos understand what's going on in this movie because <laughs> even I barely do.
0: I've only seen it the one time and cannot tell you. What was going on completely, but that's that's uh, that's kind of the the legacy of the later Mission Impossible films for sure. But it definitely like you go back and you watch Mission Impossible One now, and it's fairly straightforward. I don't oh, yeah. know where that where that legacy comes from. It's because of the John Voigt scene where he's
1: like explaining how "quote unquote" Kittredge could have done it, and then you're seeing Tom Cruise's visualization of how. K, uh, Boy, ju- uh, how how uh, what's his name did it, and so I think that threw some people off. But other than that, there's nothing about that movie that is confusing. And so go figure. I guess audiences have gotten smarter, maybe, or movies mm. have gotten dumber. I don't know.
0: Questionable on both fronts, but uh, know, movies have definitely gotten dumber. But um, at that point, like it sounds like we kind of have the same like entry point where. I, know, I was 13 when the movie came out and it was like baby's first De Palma for me as well, where it was just, you know, like I love at this point, you know, like blowout is one of my favorite movies, mm-hmm. like sisters, sisters is great. And like, obviously like uh Scarface untouchables yeah. are classics. But mm-hmm. I, even at that age, like I had a very cursory understanding of famous directors. I, I knew De Palma was like a famous director just in the same breath as Scorsese and, Francis Coppola. So I watched this movie and it kind of felt like my first adult movie experience because there's blood in it and it's kind of sexy. It's that that De Palma psychosexuality, which definitely crosses over into further further installments in the series. The Mission Impossible franchise as a whole is like a snowball that just keeps accumulating the sum of its parts and keeps moving mm-hmm. forward with them. Yeah, um, But the first one, a lot of people say that two is the standout in the franchise, like where it's like kind of the outlier. I, I really do feel like one is, is the most standoutish one in terms of what you were saying, like in terms of how austere it is and how kind of prestige it feels, and not a, it's not a popcorn movie; it's a it's an espionage movie. It's a thriller, yeah. It's a thriller, absolutely, with like a,
1: with a, a fun third act set piece that, like, you know, people to this day are sort of like, oh, well, it gets a little CGI heavy. You know, back then it was like, oh, it turns into an action movie. Um, I love the train scene, by the way. I just, I, you know there's a lot of parallels between this one and the first one and not, it's not just
0: Kittredge and the fact that it ends on a train. There's a lot totally. of similarities. That's probably purposeful with yeah. like we'll talk about, but in terms of like the franchise as a whole, like what, what does a new chapter in the mission possible franchise signify to you? Like what are the hallmarks of a mission impossible movie to you?
1: Well, it's so funny that like, I don't know. I, I wish that I had like been unfaltering in my love of the series, but like, you know, I saw two in theaters opening night midnight and really didn't like it um and you know was kind of like kind of turned off by it didn't really think about it and then by the time mission 3 came out i was already like on tour and like not really seeing as many movies in theaters as i used to so i completely missed mission 3 and so there wasn't really even this like um like uh anticipation for that and i kind of regret that to this day that that's a movie that i completely ignored in theaters because i'm sure i would have had a great time with it and it would have brought me around to the franchise much faster but like in the years after Mission Three, I ended up seeing it just maybe just out of like you know I'll check this out why not, and being like ah oh, shit I slept on this thing this movie is this movie rips, uh, um, and then Ghost Protocol was coming out and so I went and saw that movie opening day same same vibe as Mission Two right and like I I just kind of went in very casually and had like time of my life and like ever since then i have been evangelizing the series to the point where like i saw rogue nation opening day and then fallout and like now the world is sort of caught up and i wish i could say like since day one i've been like out here but like you know like obviously i I, I took a couple years off but um but now the series as a whole is you know obviously just seeing one of the only people alive i know that the joke is that ethan hunt is the living manifestation of destiny but like Tom Cruise is the only person alive making movies the way Tom Cruise does, which is the way that Buster Keaton used to the way that like some filmmakers used to, which is just like, Hey, we have some ideas. We're going to like spend some time and work in a collaborative space and make the most entertaining movie for an audience. The audience is the only person that matters. We're going to make an audience crowd pleasing film um, that just so happens to be part of this ongoing series. And it's sort of an interesting counterpoint and, you know, almost a ray of sunshine in a very very murky and stormy landscape that i think people are emerging from finally i mean i haven't seen fast 10 and you know i saw john wick Four and you know i I, there's a lot of franchises that i'm kind of falling out of love with but like i think that even indiana jones right i think that there's been a lot of people who are going like Oh, man, I shouldn't have seen that movie after I saw Mission Impossible because <laughs> I uh, sort of they sort of spoiled this for me. Um, this whole absolutely like, doing it for real thing, even if it's, you know, there's still CGI. There's still, you know, visual effects. But I mean, just the idea of letting you know these are real humans making real, real art. Uh, it's uh, it kind of has become a showcase. And it's not just the mission movies. It's Top Gun before it. But like now that that's his calling card is I make movies For adults that show you how far we can push the medium, especially if everyone's on board this like, hey, we got to make these interconnected universe stories, I'll do that, but it's going to be made like a real ass
0: movie. Yeah, on my terms. And that's kind of the funny aspect that that compares it to Fast 10. I'm a huge fan of the Fast and Furious series. I do... Recognize that it literally like fell off a cliff after seven. I think like seven was the last yeah. like acceptable one. It's always been kind of this like headed charming series to me. Um, and I'll go more in depth in that when we finally cover that eventually when Fast Seventeen comes out. <laughs> it's funny that that comes up as a comparison point because the Fast series, with their fatal flaw, is what they did was they embraced the fan in a way in the reverse way than what you should do it. They embraced the fan and made a movie that the fan would make for the fan. Like mm-hmm. they bring back characters that are dead for no reason, because that's a crazy trope of the movies. They make it about family because the memes are about family. And it's like, they start incorporating all this junk into the movie and it becomes a trashy version of itself. It's always been kind of a trashy version of itself. And that was the charm. What mission impossible does is they're like, we're going to make a movie for the fan and for the movie goer, but we're going to give them something that, they don't, that like they don't know that they want yet. It's not reverse engineered to be a meme in and of itself. It's we're going to blow your mind with the expectation for what you have for the series and kind of hide all of our surprises in the cracks around it. And you'll never know what's coming because that we've designed it this way and we understand what makes a movie crowd pleasing. Like I've read interviews with Christopher McQuarrie where he says like his film school was being a security guard at a movie theater and just kind of studying what got reactions from people, what quieted the theater what made people lose their minds, what made people mm-hmm. cheer, what made people groan. And he said that was his film school. And that's so apparent in these movies. And like I was saying, that snowball effect of you know Mission Impossible 1, you get the framework for the series. You get Ethan Hunt. You get that sexless, but also very sexual undertone to it. There's a much hornier version of
1: Mission 1 that's out there that we'll never see, unfortunately. But I'm <laughs> curious what that
0: movie is. I've edited it on my own computer at home. I'll show it to you later. No, just <laughs> there's a, so there's that. Then Mission Impossible 2 kind of introduces the psychotic, frenzied action aspect of it. Three adds the kind of sassy, we can break apart the mold aspect of it. Four adds the kind of Looney Tunes, Acme, Wile E. Coyote, Roadrunner aspect of the series. Five adds Macquarie. Six just goes off the planet and then seven is like what do we do now and i mean i guess that's where we're at so it's just funny to, it's fun to see the uh the evolution of it because a lot of people think that they're they're interconnected in like the most cursory way possible but in a way they've they've all been of yeah. a piece with themselves because it's not just evolving the story it's not just building up to avengers end game of the mission impossible series it's it's cumulative it's passing on knowledge from one movie to the another to what makes these things tick and i think they finally perfected it so you know in terms of fast and furious and like john wick and bond it's all these other action franchises like is is mission impossible the gold standard oh my god absolutely no 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 doubt you know I,
1: and i i've i love james bond i love john wick um and I, I like the born movies i have nothing bad to say about them um yeah I I'll, I'll omit my feelings on the Fast and Furious franchise. Uh but <laughs> okay. the the um you know the Bond series is notorious for chasing trends. That's like both a feature and a bug. Some of the best things we've gotten out of Bond movies some of the most you know silly things we've gotten out of Bond movies are because they're so desperately chasing whatever's popular at the time and there's something kind of desperate and lovable about that um mm-hmm. because you know it's one thing to like you know, the Mission Impossible movies, I guess, technically had a roadmap with their television series. They could be just adapting fun episodes and just exploring them, blowing them up. Like, you know, exactly for right. example, like yep. Star Trek, you know, like Star Trek could just be like, oh, we're going to take that like time travel episode and like really blow it up and make it into a, like a larger feature length thing. Uh, but they chose not to do that. But the Bond franchise is like they have books, they have stories, they had functional, normal ass, you know, racist, sexist. You know, horny stories that they could like, <laughs> you know, turn into features. But instead, they were sort of like, well, people are real into martial arts right now, so I guess <laughs>
0: this
1: this book he goes to Japan, and it's like, well, in the other, and the and this this movie goes to Japan, it's like, well, in the book he went to Russia, and it's like, well, Russia's not interesting right now, so <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, th- that seems to be the general energy of uh, the the Bond series, and like I respect it, I like it, I I love, I have strong feelings about that series but you know if you were to say like only one lives um i would take the missions despite being there only being a third of the amount of those movies right you know there's also just something that's infinitely rewatchable about them they don't have like you know i i couldn't tell you that there's like oh well there's the funny john wick or, like, there's the, like, you know, there's the born that has, like, that, that, like, one sequence that's, like, really lighthearted and, like, it has emotional state. Well, it's, like, it's, like, no, like, there's a mission flavor for any day
0: of the week because all the mission movies kind of have their own tone to them. Even within themselves, they they strike different tones that are reminiscent of these other franchises. That they're like, well, we can do it better. Didn't mean to interrupt you. Go for it. No, no, absolutely. I mean, look, that that's the reality. Is like some of them are super theatrical.
1: Some of them aren't. You know, like I I, I glossed over my my reemerged feelings to, for Mission Impossible Two, which is that I actually like that movie now. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it took was seeing it in. theater again but in the having seen a a lot more john woo films other than just like face off right like you know it's just like going in and being like oh i understand who this filmmaker is and that like tom cruise and understanding the context that up until that point tom cruise literally only worked with the masters you know and uh, i'm not saying that he's that john woo isn't a master but like you got to think about it this way like at that point he'd worked with oliver stone he'd worked with um, you know uh, Brian De Palma he'd worked with uh, uh you know uh, um, why am I spacing on names Jesus Christ uh, Ridley Scott you know Tony mm-hmm. Scott he's worked with all these people and then like he he's working with John he you know Stanley Kubrick uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and then right. now he's doing a John Woo movie like he hands himself over to these filmmakers and makes these incredible pieces of art and it's really funny just to think that like oh yeah and then Tom Cruise starred in a John Woo movie in 2000 Right. Like Absolutely. that's, right, that's right. far more interesting to me than being like, well, in canon, this is, you know, like five <laughs> years after he was betrayed by the IMF and blah, it's like, no, that movie is just yeah, like a, yeah. a really fun genre exercise that like he made with a with an incredible filmmaker. That's like right. a lesser entry in the series as a whole, but still like a totally competently made and fun movie in its own right.
0: Yeah, it's kind of all over the place plot wise, but like what Mission Impossible isn't. And you go back and you just like so many movies from that era, you go back and you watch them without the burden of hype or the burden of bad press or the burden of just anything else like that. And you're like, you kind of see that that vision come through, I think, very specifically of the final battle on the beach, Mm -hmm. like the knife fight on the beach with the waves crashing. Very naturalistic John Woo moment. Everyone's like the doves, oh, the doves. But it's like, this is that's the more Jamwoo moment is just comparing the crashing of these two titans against each other with the crashing Mm -hmm. of the waves. And it's like, this is cool, man. (laughs) Like this is, it might start with CGI wraparound Oakley's being thrown at the camera and exploding. (laughs) And then like a a shitty, like guitar center, like metal riff blasting as the intro, but it's fun. And it introduces so many things to the series that are definitely still there through dead reckoning even. So yeah, you really can't knock it. What do you think is your favorite mission impossible set piece? Oh man. Um, let me rephrase that. What's the defining Mission Impossible set piece? Defining, it's obviously breaking into Langley. 100%.
1: I think the, the one that gives it a run for its money is definitely the Burj Khalifa. I just recently re- revisited all of uh, Buster Keaton's films. I had seen so many sequences from Buster Keaton, but I'd never seen a full movie of his. And it was just funny to see them actually in the context of Films themselves. And I had no idea what each one would be when I started them. And so when you start Steamboat Bill Jr., you don't realize that you're about to, like, as you get to the third act of that movie, that you're going to see the iconic, like, front of a house falls down and he's standing perfectly in the center of a window moment, you know? And that's the thing that, you know, invented that trope. But that is nestled in between the most incredible 30-minute action set piece I've ever seen committed to film. And that thing came out in the 20s, you know, and not the 2020s, in like the 1920s. And it's like so chaotic and so insane and clearly so inspirational to Tom Cruise and Christopher Macquarie. And obviously they talk about the general and they talk about other things like the general is the train movie, right? And so yep. there, there's a ton of things like that. But those set pieces, so to speak, those whole entire epic things are just so monumental that like they've lived literally for a hundred years. Like to this day they inspire. And I think that the Langley heist and the Burj Khalifa set pieces in particular will go down in history for another hundred years. Uh, Like, you know, filmmakers will watch Tom Cruise hanging outside of the Burj Khalifa and it will be, they will be inspired to
0: make art that feels as visceral and real as that does. In terms of the general it gives you so much more appreciation for what they had to do back in what was it like 1927 for the general mm-hmm. yeah. where they're filming with real trains and like m- crashing real trains right like in uh-huh. and, and and it's mystifying you i barely can conceive of how they do stuff like this with cg but uh-huh. to actually invent these dangerous stunts and these moments just to get it on film is really inspiring. And I just, I think that the Burj Khalifa is if mission impossible one didn't exist, it would be the number one. I'm going to give an honorable mention to the opera, the opera scene uh, in rogue nation, uh, which is just its own little Hitchcock movie, just nestled inside of um, two hour and 20 minute long uh, summer blockbuster. It's Mm -hmm. fucking awesome. Yeah. Also as a flute gun, (laughs) but the, the Burj Khalifa is just, I've watched making of features and things like that. And I still just can't even conceive of how they did that, of how they accomplished that. It's just so goddamn fun. I also really love the um, Rogue Nation. I've, I, you know, was kind of like lower on my list for a while. And I, when I revisited it before Dead Reckoning came out, I really appreciated the uh, the opening, that cold opening where they're like, where's, where's Ethan? Where's Ethan? And then he's like, <laughs> and he just shows up on the hill. I'm not in the plane. I'm on the plane. I don't know if they actually did this with Tom Cruise, but like, oh, I know that he actually held on to the side of the plane. But when he, you know, opens the wrong door, yeah. and then he finally opens the parachute door and he gets sucked in and like sla- <laughs> slammed against the wall I have to imagine that Tom Cruise actually did that and it's that's like one of the most Buster Keaton moments it's slapstick humor just put in the middle of this incredible set piece so you know with all that said and done let's collect both halves of the cruciform key some chimera samples the knock list a few orbs of plutonium and whatever the rabbit's foot is strap on our sky wing and maneuver our way through the highs and lows of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning So with Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, the basic gist of the plot, Ethan Hunt and his trusty IMF team must track down a cruciform key that holds the answer to defeating a terrifying new weapon, the Entity, an AI construct that threatens to eradicate the truth as we know it if it falls into the wrong hands. With control of the future and the fate of the world at stake, a deadly race around the globe begins. Confronted by Gabriel, a surrogate for the Entity and shadowy figure from Hunt's past, Ethan is forced to put the mission at hand in front of the lives of his team. and forget everything he's ever known about being an IMFA. In, in order to seek out the source code of the entity in a bombed-out shell of Sevastopol, a Soviet submarine that was tricked into its own destruction by the entity itself. You've seen it twice. Is that pretty close?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. That, that's actually. I mean, like, that's a very succinct way of saying it. It is. Uh, they don't know that it's in the I guess mean, the movie ends with them realizing what the destination is. The audience knows, but we it. know.
0: We know. Yeah, we
1: know. And that actually gets to a, a larger point about the interesting thing about how Macquarie has approached this film, which is that it's very plot-heavy. It's very dense. But the audience always knows what's going on, and it's always honest with the audience and It's very interesting for a movie that's very much about the truth and what isn't like it always kind of keeps you at bay, and so there's large sequences where like he could have done a thing where like you don't know who's actually talking to him on the intercom, and then that's revealed later like the the a i can be talking to people and blah blah blah, but he always really lets you know that like where the story is going, and it's very right. um. Even seeing it a second time, like I, I was worried that like I was something was being lost on me the first time around. But watching it, no, it's actually very, very just matter of fact. And so, even though it seems confusing, like most people, if they were to ask, if you ask them like what's the plot of that movie, it's like, oh, it's IMF versus AI, and the AI can destroy the truth, and that they're trying to find keys so they can go to find a sub that is the plot of the movie there's nothing else going on in that movie <laughs> right, uh, right? Right. other right. than the thematic stuff which there's a ton of things going on thematically in this movie
0: no you? there's nothing thematically at all going on in this <laughs> movie at all yeah, released on July 12th, two, uh, 2023, not 2003. July 12th, 2023, directed by Christopher McQuarrie, written, of course, by Christopher McQuarrie and Eric Eric Jenderson. Budget of $291 million, one of the most expensive movies ever made. Box office so far of $80 million domestic, $155 million internationally for a total of $235 million combined. Starring Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt. Have you ever heard of him? I don't want to get too muddled in like the behind-the-scenes Cruise stuff, but like, what's your... What's your crew's stance? Like, why do you think we've accepted him as like movie daddy, even though his, <laughs> even like with, with his spotty, like personal history? Like, well, yeah. So, look,
1: look, like if we, if we were to go ahead and ignore the big uh, Scientology shaped elephant in the room, mm-hmm. the whole thing about him being a weirdo, right? I think is a misnomer. I think that, you totally. know, he's one of the most famous people who's ever lived. And I do think that there is something about that where, like, the whole like jumping on the couch thing and all that stuff, like all that stuff. I feel like in the context of what actually happened explains sort of why he because people joke junk on him now for like not answering questions in interviews like you know i saw letterboxd attempt to get him to do his his top four and everyone in the comments being like oh like you thought you were to get tom cruise to ever give a non-wishy-washy answer about things it's because like (laughs) that man showed you who he was once and got dunked on so hard and made fun of forever (laughs) and lost like almost half of his career because of it you know oh yeah absolutely a, a, a total dork and a goof sincere and like everyone who works with the man says that he is the nicest, most dedicated, and passionate person in the world. And so if you let the work speak for itself, obviously again, ignoring the giant Scientology element
0: yeah, in the room. Ignoring um, that awful part. But but yeah,
1: so I mean if you can get past that, and I know not everyone can, it is right. it is worth re-exploring because, and this is the other big part of it, if you're talking about like why there are no movie stars anymore? why that why is this person still being spoken about, especially in a world of post cancellation and post like irrelevance and and, you know, uh, Gen Z growing up in an era where, like, you know, the, it, practically a boomer would be invested in the career of somebody who's had a career as long as him, right? It's mm-hmm. like the reality is, I don't think Tom Cruise has made a bad movie except for maybe Rock of Ages.
0: Okay, thank you. This is the uh, the hill I will die on. I watched, I got COVID after I went to celebration Star Wars celebration in Anaheim. Uh, I came back from for two weeks, I was laid out on the couch and I watched for some reason, I don't know if he visited me in like a weird fever dream. <laughs> I watched every Tom Cruise movie start to finish. And I think about Tom Cruise the same way I think about space, which is I can't comprehend how big he is. As a star, as an actor, as a personality, as a presence on the earth, I can't fathom Tom Cruise. Like, I can wrap my head around Tom Hanks. I can wrap my head around uh, Meryl Streep, you know, but Tom Cruise is such a gigantic entity, both in my life and in the history of movies at Mm -hmm. large, that it's impossible to comprehend how important he is to the history of movies. And yeah. with all that baggage and the stuff that he brings with him, you're absolutely right. Like Rock of Ages, a big swing, a big miss. Sure. He's the best part of that movie. <laughs> miscast. Completely yes. miscast, but you get to see him doing his thing and trying his hardest to make it the best thing possible. But what? You think about Born on the Fourth of July. You think about Magnolia. You think about Jerry Maguire. You Jerry think Maguire. About, like, a few good men. Like, yeah, oh my God, the firm. He does handsprings in the firm for no reason. Yes. We should have seen Mission Impossible coming. I know. I know.
1: Yeah, and it's a shame he's been sort of, you know, and uh, I, I read a book, this incredible film critic named, uh, named a- Amy Nicholson, who hosts The Unspooled mm-hmm. with Paul Shear. She wrote a book about Tom Cruise. It's an incredible read, and it, and it goes into detail about, you know, sort of how we remember the couch jump differently than it actually happened, and like, but how crazy that was, that, that like that was the beginning of derail you know, again, it wasn't the Scientology thing. It was that was the moment where he showed a little bit too much emotion and he showed us who he actually was and it was like alien to people. And then <laughs> people started to go, oh wait, this guy is a little more human than we thought he was and that was detrimental and since then he's been clamoring to get back our attention and the only way he knows how to do that unfortunately now is to make mission impossible sequels and top gun sequels right like Mm -hmm. he's done a couple of small things he did a couple of comedies where he was the butt of him but he was the butt of the joke like tropic thunder and night of night and day which arguably casts him as a sociopath right like Sure, sure. He's done a bunch of movies that sort of like, uh, you know, even Jack Reacher were like, Oh my God, the, Jack Reacher main, is a masterpiece. Can we have, the, have a 20 minute sidebar about how good the first yeah. Jack Reacher is? The first we Jack really Reacher, should. Um is my comfort food. Like, some people like watching like episodes of Law and Order. Like, I would it, literally any day of the week, if you start the movie <laughs> Jack Reacher, I will finish it. That movie. I'd argue is better than some
0: Mission Impossible movies. And I love the it Mission rules. Impossible movies. It's anyway. fantastic. But even that movie, th- one of the main points of the character Jack Reacher is that he's tall. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Tom Cruise will actively take parts like that to be like, I am also tall. And they're like, no, you're not. But he's like, I am. Look at me in this movie. I am very tall. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all been so reactionary to that moment. And it's fascinating that it, it leads him to throwing himself off cliffs side jumping on the sides of airplanes doing press junkets while skydiving and saying like, see you at the movies. And it's like, yeah. you're a, is, is a sociopath.
1: So he, he like literally like, this has become an ongoing joke. Obviously movies in general are just like not very sexy at all period, but like mm-hmm. it's become a joke that like how sexless, you know, Tom Cruise's characters have become. And it's interesting because like, you know, this gets back to the testing of it all. Like he will test his movies To find the make sure that audiences like them and Jack Reacher is a good example of that they tested an ending in which like him and Rosamund Pike kiss, and it tested poorly. And so (laughs) he just cut it. Like no, like now that movie ends with him just literally walking away and getting on a bus and like, it is, you know, I think he is very smart. He what he all he wants to do is please his audience. And that comes from the fact that he felt rejected for a little while. And now he will do anything to give the people what they want. And then fortunately, nowadays, it is franchise to bring it back full circle from the intro, which is just like, if this is what movies are now, he's going to make the best fucking version of this most auteur driven version of this thing for you, because y'all are malnourished and y'all forgot what
0: movies used to be. And if this is what movies are now, well, I'm just going to make the best version of it possible. And I will be the last man standing for sure doing it. Um, do you think it's also a reaction to the poor performance of Mission Impossible 2? Do you th- it just feels like everything he's done since then has been like, it's got to be the absolute best possible that, thing. That's, never, the, that's the, I mean, still you know, the highest grossing Mission Impossible. Critically speaking, people are oh, saying yeah, that yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. not like it, it wasn't up to snuff. And I think he's just like, I'll show them. I didn't realize that that was still the highest grossing one. That's mm-hmm. wild. Yeah. Mission Impossible
1: 2 is still the highest grossing Mission Impossible. I think maybe r- uh, Fallout came close, but none have, have outgrossed Mission Impossible 2, especially adjusted for inflation.
0: I think that that kind of adds to the theory. That means a lot of people saw it, and a lot of people were disappointed by it uh, at the time. So uh, Dead Reckoning does not just star Tom Cruise. It brings back Ving Rhames as the Net Ranger himself, Phineas Freak, aka Luther Strickle. Simon Pegg back as Benji Dunn. Rebecca Ferguson just like the hottest woman on the planet as Mm -hmm. Elsa Foss, just like incredible. And when she's introduced in rogue nation, it's just like, just give this franchise to her. Like (laughs) she presses the mute button on Tom Cruise so hard. There's a little moment in that movie where I I was rewatching them and I was like, Oh, they're getting secretly raunchy where he's searching her in the back of a cab. This is Mm -hmm. in rogue nation and he's searching her and interrogating her. And she's like, I got in a bit of a tight spot. And when she says tight, she kind of like clenches a little bit and he pulls out, (laughs) a thing of lipstick and it's like i wonder where that came from but she's back she's incredible we'll talk more about her in a second Haley atwell who Macquarie and tom cruise have been clamoring for forever to be in the series they finally got her she's grace that's it just just grace there's a guy in this movie called Otto von bork but yes there
1: is <laughs> Hayley,
0: but Haley atwell is just grace um she's phenomenal here vanessa kirby who is just like magnificent in these movies as the white widow alana mitzopolis face what a face that woman has Unbelievable. So and those burning blue eyes, mm-hmm. she's just she's just so wonderful. Isai Morales as Gabriel, what a face that guy has as mm-hmm. well. This is where I wanted to bump this question to, but who's your favorite villain in the series?
1: You know, for for a, a purist who would still list Mission Impossible One as his favorite movie in the series, I think John Lark. John Lark does it for me. Um, I think that Henry Cavill is still is going to continue to be the probably the the thing that they can't beat, I, you know, the, the villains from, you know, the, the villain from Rogue Nation slash Fallout, the like, larger villain, Solomon Lane, Solomon Lane is, you know, sort of whatever. And he's co- kind of a red herring in Fallout anyway, because, you know, he's there pulling the strings, but he never rises to being anything more interesting than what Henry Cavill is doing. You know, I like The villain of Ghost Protocol because I like that movie a lot, but Mm -hmm. I, you know, I wouldn't say that he's a a great villain. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman is so special, but he's he's also a red herring, right? Like he is not the villain of that movie. It's, um, you know, Flash's dad. What's his name? Uh, Almost famous. Why am I spacing on his name? (laughs) I'm 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 also spacing on his name. (laughs) We can just move on. No, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, Anyway, so yeah, I mean, and then no one likes do gray scott and the, the famous story of him almost being wolverine but choosing mission impossible is such a you know it's a it's a telling uh anecdote about the the nature of how hard it is to make art in this space and how quickly you can come and go and how relevant you can be in a second and you know the opportunities you take the sliding doors of of careers in hollywood it's just so interesting to to be in that position and also for that to be the butt of the joke right that you almost right, were 100 percent. Right. yeah <laughs> Billy Crudup, by the way. Billy Crudup. So just, let's just splice that in and avoid the... Uh, I'll give you a clean take. Billy Crudup. Our um, favorite well-known actor, Billy Crudup. <laughs> Certainly no one that we forgot the name of for a solid 30 seconds.
0: I almost said Jim Caviezel, which is its own separate pod as well yeah, at this okay. point. But um, stay tuned next week for our Sound of Freedom podcast. <laughs> it's funny that we were talking about other villains because I really... Issa Morales is good in this movie. It's one of those things where this is such a part one cliffhanger that mm-hmm. I need to see the... I need to know how it... Wraps itself up to understand truly. I knew what his his role was in this film, but I was like, I don't really know what he's up to. That's definitely a, a byproduct of only seeing it one time. But I understand the motivation of being like the surrogate of the AI, but I'm just kind of like, okay, what's this guy's deal? And I, I don't think we'll fully know until part two is wrapped up. Well, yeah, I mean, they they
1: clearly have like a larger thing going with Shay Wiggum and Ethan but also that mystery woman who was killed at the beginning and the like, you know, apparently they shot a de-aged Tom Cruise sequence for that opening that they scrapped. And so there's obviously like a larger story at play that they're going to fill in the gaps for to give Esai, Shay and him a more color.
0: And I can't wait because Shea Wiggum is off the chain in this movie. He's so good. Another person that's incredible is, P- uh, Palm Clemente as Paris. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was mantis and guardians of the galaxy, but I feel like out of makeup and out of CGI costuming, this is like her star making role. I saw someone talk about how the mission impossible franchise pulls people out of superhero hell and gives them, gives them career identity. Gives them new life. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, that's definitely the case with Palm Clementine here. She's, she almost steals the show. She's so good in this Mm -hmm. and adds an energy. If she was absent from the film, that energy would be sorely missed of just that playful, uh, madcap, kind of almost Bond villain energy. Henry Cerny back as Eugene Kittredge. Thank God. His line readings in this movie are, are like (laughs) off the charts. Good. The way he's he's describing the things, like
1: the next world war won't be a cold (laughs) war, it'll be a war with (laughs) weapons waging. Across over natural resources depletion, including drinkable water and breathable
0: air. Yes. It's the <laughs> And that's that's exactly the moment I was thinking about. So thank goodness you're on this podcast because <laughs> this might be the last movie I'm ever in. Who knows? Let's let's shoot for the moon. So mm-hmm. um, I liked in his uh letterboxed top four, he named two movies that he's in. Yeah. Bless. Your days of fighting for the so-called greater good. Are over. This is our chance to control the truth, the concepts of right and wrong from everyone for centuries to come. You're fighting to save an ideal that doesn't exist. Never did. Icon status. Yeah. Shea Wiggum, speaking of icon status as Jasper Briggs. Incredible. And then Craig Tarzan Davis uh, Mm -hmm. and Charles Purnell are just both in this movie from Top Gun Maverick. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just like, I love when that happens where they're like, we just had such a good time. We're bringing you over to this one, too. Let's do it. Uh, And then, of course, we can't miss Carrie Elway's as Denlinger or Denlinger. I can't remember. Uh, Director of National. Denlinger denlinger the director of national intelligence and a big imf naysayer he doesn't believe it he doesn't get it i love what he says he's like what you just leave a message out and a guy gets it and takes (laughs) care of it it's so good in terms of the movie itself like fallout set the bar so insanely high did you think dead directly cleared that bar so it's very
1: weird to the series is so unique in that like now that i'm we're on chapter seven right like and this whole like oh we rank the movies right like that that sort of that that mentality maybe comes from the fast movies that movie kind of that mentality comes from some marvel movies that movie, you know mentality comes from there's very few franchises that go this long right,
0: right. um
1: and so like it was it was weird that they were getting better and better after three, right? So three and then four is better. And then Rogue Nation, like I, a, a lot of people, that's some of them, my wife's favorite is Rogue Nation, right? And so, you know, and then Fallout comes along and then that—that that is the, that now that has become the benchmark for everyone. And it's sort of, you know, this is going to be a very, very strange reference point given the subject of this podcast. But uh, to bring my wife back into this subject, she's a very big Taylor Swift fan and so am I. But like, you know, it would be like, if, uh, you know, let's say uh, Ghost Protocol was 1989 and everyone really <laughs> likes that movie, right? And then like, you know, they made Rogue Nation, but then like Fallout is folklore, right? Where it's like, now everyone's <laughs> like, well, that's the best one, right? And it's sort of like, well, you know, they're all great. You know, like, it's just, you know, some people are just sort of like, they pick the ones that are just sort of like, well, that's the best one now. And all the other ones that came in between, are sort of like, you know, whatever, not really worth talking about. And it's sort of like, no, they're all special. Like, every single one of them is special. And so, like, I didn't go into this being like, will this beat Fallout? Because even though I love Fallout, it's high on my list. I'm a, like, the one for me to beat is Mission 1. And the gulf between Fallout, Ghost Protocol, and Rogue Nation are basically the differences between, like... A 9.9, a 9.7, and a 9.5. Right. Just infinitesimal differences. So I like this movie a lot. I like it a whole lot. Second time really smoothed over some rough stuff for me the first go. Um, But I would say I like this more than Rogue Nation but still not as much as Fallout or Ghost Protocol and i think that that might have to do mo- mostly because of its whole part one-ness. Also there's just so much plot in this and i this might be how some people feel about like Avengers Infinity War which i think Avengers Infinity War is really fun but i've also only seen it once. But like some people are like oh well you know i would re- Endgame really brought it home right and maybe that's how this will this will work for some people um and i agree with that sentiment sentiment but for this one like I would say that this is a super enjoyable film that like feels like it's setting up so much, so many dominoes to pay off in a way that feels like when I first saw fallout, the first 20 minutes of that movie felt really slow. And I was really nervous that the movie was like, not going to be good for those first 20 minutes and then when the when i once i realized that oh this guy was in a set and they knock it down it was all of oh my god for that big and that that's obviously like a, such a fist-pumping moment but but like i kind of am getting nervous that a lot of dead reckoning part one is setting up something like that for the p- second part um, it's gotta um, be right yeah and i i guess we can talk a little bit Uh, about spoilers at this point but like the obviously the Ilsa Faust of it all is so divisive at this point like I have some friends who I saw it with who like like yeah the movie was good I guess but like I can't believe they did that to Ilsa and like you just see sort of this like this this sort of like I knew I knew Tom Cruise was going to fuck this up somehow, you know, basically coming yeah. back to the and being like I knew he would just, you know, he was just replacing her with another woman and that kind of thing. And I was like, no, 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 no. There's so many other things going on in this movie. Like he's actually replacing himself with two women. And it seems like, you know, Palm and Haley and a bunch of people are he's basically handing over the mantle finally. And like,
0: right, there's a character in the original Mission Impossible named Paris, like in, in Palm character characters named Paris. You know, there's a lot of fridging talk going on. He fr- he fridges two women in this movie to establish himself as the premier spy of his generation, and it's mm-hmm. like I don't think you understand Mission Impossible at this no, point. Because I don't think he's, uh, people
1: who say that don't really understand what's going on at play because because MacQuarie is aware of all those tropes, and to bring to bring it back full circle, the like the fact that there there are there is so much sleight of hand in this movie, and so much. so many talk. To- there's so many talks about people faking their own deaths in this movie that like and the fact that the, one of the opening lines in the fucking screenplay is a man being like unless you have literally staked him through the heart his open heart and you see him die then that, that person is not dead like, literally, right. there, are, there are moments like, and I could be wrong. Like, I would love to be proven wrong. I would love to still be happy with the outcome, even if Ilsa doesn't come back. And it was just truly scheduling conflicts and that she was making Dune and couldn't be there and needed to be written off or whatever. But there is something so magnificent that would be something so m- magician-like if they can find a creative way to justify that
0: bait-and-switch be- without betraying the audience. And if there's any writer, I believe, could do it, it's Macquarie. One of the most standout moments from Mission Impossible 1 is that scene where he's with uh, Jean Reno and fakes him out Mm. into getting the the real knock list back. The knock list, yeah. You're bringing back Kittredge. You're bringing back a train chase. You're bringing back, of all things, close-up magic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And not just close-up magic, but close-up on close-up magic. Mm -hmm. Like It's the closest you've ever seen close-up magic on screen. It's been seven movies and you bring that back. That's not unintentional. And it feels like we're closing the loop on Mission Impossible as Cruise's franchise, which is insane to think about because this has been his baby for, what, mm-hmm. 20 years? Yeah. They're pining after Haley Atwell. And like you said, they introduced Palm Clementif as this character that switches sides and allegiances near the very end and is like, why did you save me? Mm-hmm. Like, you didn't have to do that. So that's her origin story. It feels like if we're doing close-up magic, then the prestige is about to come in part two. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't fuck with Ethan Hunt. like He knows everything. Even if you take away all of his gadgets and all of his team, he's still the best one. I enjoyed the new Indiana Jones, our whole podcast episode on that people can listen to. But I think this movie has the potential of addressing aging superhero-like character in the real world better than that movie. Like Indiana Jones, I thought, did it pretty well. But I think this movie has the opportunity to... Acknowledge, even though it's Tom Cruise, it, it could be this moment where he really humanizes himself once again and acknowledges his age, and acknowledges that he's kind of a dying breed. But here is the actual future of Hollywood: who the like next generation
1: is. Like, obviously, like there's so many young actors in this in this movie that like could be the next generation, and like you know, Greg Darzan Davis and Palm and Um Haley, obviously. Like it's so odd that you know, they talk about recruitment, they talk about all these things. Like there's so many people in this film that like are clearly being uh, you know, it, it that could be the next generation. And that's and the movie also introduces how recruitment into the IMF works. Yep. Right. Like that they, they they're setting that all that up. And so yeah, I mean it makes perfect sense, especially like Benji and and Luther I mean, Ving Rhames is getting up there. Like, I don't know how many of these he has in him. It seemed like his last one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it does seem like like, he was on his last legs. This seems like it could be the end of, like, the team, right? And there's a world in which Tom just does, like, legacy status stuff. Like, he is the Jim Phelps of the series, and he gets to, like, (laughs) oversee things and be part of the movies and just sort of produce them still and blah, blah, blah. But, like... There's a clear like runway for him to be setting up for Haley to, to take over the series. And I for one think that this is a great showcase for that. And, you know, again, getting back to the Haley, the Ilsa Faust of it all, like, I don't think that there's a world in which Ilsa would be or Rebecca would do these movies if it wasn't the this group. Right. Like if it wasn't like, oh, she's like, you know, part of the, the, the group, right? The the crew. Right. Because I don't think that Ilsa would become the leader of the series. Like she's not she's not Tom Cruise. Right. And I don't think no, Haley no. is either. But I think that I think that there's a dynamic at play here that like if anyone's going to become the quote unquote lead of the series, it needs to be someone who is willing to take it on and really be that. And I could get the feeling that that whether it was a group decision or it was like a a conversation, especially given that, you know, Rebecca Ferguson's career is uh, on the up, 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 up that she was like, oh yeah, yeah, no, you can write me out. Like, that's great. Like, you know, come up with a fun way to write me out as opposed to being like, we're going to do this forever. Right. It's like, no man, Tom,
0: (laughs) Tom can't do this forever. And it kind of seems like an eight movie origin story for an actual team because you know, that's Mm -hmm. the biggest thing for mission impossible. One was that, All the hype and all the marketing was around this, like, you know, Emilio Estevez, like the team is getting, it's going to be a big team spy movie. And then Mm -hmm. they all die in the first 10 minutes. Spoiler alert. I'm I'm sure everyone's (laughs) seen Mission Impossible 1 at this point. It kind of comes down to this fact, like, there's the imagery in this, like, the the key is a crucifix. Like, it's Mm -hmm. like, I, I feel like it's leading to Ethan Hunt sacrificing himself for the greater good so that the IMF can go on without him. Yeah. And it just it just really it, it I feel like there's just no other way around it than that. Who knows? It might not be the case, but like in terms of o- other themes in the movie, like clearly the the AI aspect of it with the entity is really Nostradamus level future telling, reading the tea leaves of the industry. Like what did you what did you make of the film's like in your face the use of AI as the villain? It seems to it seemed to me like a, a pretty direct like only humans can tell stories this good.
1: You know? Yeah, I mean, look, it, the, I would say that a good companion, people, you know, they, they talk a little bit about like their filmmaking influences with things like the General and Buster Keaton films. But like, if you want to watch a like more up its own ass, but still very good version of this movie, there's an episode of Rick and Morty called Story Train <laughs> uh, that sort of explores the idea of tropes and plot on the rails, plotting and things that, and like all the different types of tropes that people have become aware of to the point where they become, because the audience is so aware of how things are written that people think that they can, anyone can do it. Right. And that they're ahead of the story and all these things. And I think Mm -hmm. that Macquarie, it's interesting because he went into this movie basically without a script, right. They come up with set pieces and they've come up with sort of the general outline. It's Ethan versus AI or the algorithm, Right. right. More than anything
0: and he said like he didn't know how the movie was going to end but he knew it was going to end in that uh train car. Yeah. He's like we just got we have to re- reverse engineer this to get here. How do we do it? The Rome chase was designed the way it was because the cobblestone on the street was slippery mm-hmm. and they couldn't get a, they couldn't get a good shot with the cars so they just made that the chase scene was that the cars were slipping around all over the place. Yeah. The story
1: doesn't really matter. That could, that could be a problem for some people but for me I watched it and I was like, yeah, you know, honestly like in the in the cracks and in the margins they came up with a story about storytelling which is interesting for a movie that was written without a script right like it is a movie about like what is storytelling and if the villain is artificial intelligence that basically is like i know the story i could tell you the story and anyone can write these things it's sort of like no like yes characters that are versus story tropes and the predictability and what an algorithm says it can do, the the algorithm being able to predict human behavior, right? Like what does that even really mean? And first, especially given that Tom's thematic, you know, obsession now with being the only man alive who's going to save cinema, right? That's what Top Gun Maverick was also about too, right? So the fact that he is, this is his new, his new crusade is saving storytelling and saving the experience from what, you know, the Netflix is the world and the people out there who think that all you got to do is just, you know, you can trick humans into, you know, being force fed garbage in, in the media, right? But um, I do think it's interesting to watch a movie in which the villain is basically saying like with a few small changes, you can make any outcome happen and you can do all these things. And it's Tom Cruise literally being like, okay, well, if that's the, if those are the rules of this chase, and I guess that we basically have to like, I read, I read a review somewhere that was basically like Ethan actually falls for, he fails at every step of the way in this movie because the algorithm is right because these are actually good story beats and On that notion, the movie is actually pretty smart because the one thing that the movie can't predict is how insane
0: Tom Cruise is. (laughs) (laughs) It's so it's so true, and that's the thing too. Like like again, you take away, there's like we're saying there's CG in this movie, but I I wouldn't say sparingly. But I I, you know they they use it where it's needed, and that's about it. The meta text of that is like in the movie. IMF can't use their crazy gadgets because they've all been compromised by AI. So that means that in the movie itself on a meta level, Tom Cruise and them are going to really do this on a train. They're really going to do this on a coal powered train, mm-hmm. not a like speed train. And that, like that it's just going to be all these analog devices all over the place. We're going to take away all the cool elements that you understand. The mask machine is going to blow up again. We can't use that. We can't use the communications channels because the AI can take over the voice. So we take away that cool thing. And it's just Tom Cruise's body. That is going to save everything forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he's literally going to crash through the side of a train wearing a parachute and save all of humanity from the lies of AI. Mm-hmm. It's it's just like it couldn't be any more more evident.
1: Yeah, prescient, prescient in a way that they they probably didn't they didn't even know that they were writing a such a topical movie at the time. It was going to be feel like sort of like oh well you know the algorithm right. But
0: now that AI is I'm so front of mind, they're privy to a level of Hollywood that we are obviously not. Yeah. Uh, where they they saw the storm coming way before anyone else did right because they hear the rumblings they have their ear to the ground they got ahead of it and all the covid setbacks and everything that really weirdly just popped this movie out right at the right point so
1: well there's a there's that old saying that every movie that a filmmaker makes is actually about the last movie that they made and i would say that it's kind of telling that especially given all the drama that went in to the home video the, the release of maverick that while they were making this movie it was very front of mind that paramount plus was basically trying to steal maverick and put it on totally and that tom cruise said no absolutely over my dead body <laughs> um,
0: literally man when tom cruise goes it'll be a sad day for for all of humanity well not <laughs> probably not for all of humanity um At least for the <laughs> industry Probably a lot more we could say about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Again, having only seen it the one time, Mo, I think you've seen it the two times. Having it just come out, um, I'm sure there'll be more to say later on in the year in December. You know, at this point, that's all I really can say is that it's amazing and you got to go see it. There's a lot more going on than meets the eye. It's not nearly as convoluted as you think it is. It's pretty straightforward. It's just a ride. Don't overthink it. It's a it's
1: just a fun exercise in it literally is like a roller coaster ride. It never stops. Once once the movie truly starts, which once when they're in uh, the airport, the movie never lets off the gas except for like one exposition dump in the middle of it to like really up to upspeed you and like to me honestly that is the perfect example of how little the story actually matters to this. Sure. Unless you want it to. In which case it does feel like they have some meat on those bones if you really want to pick at them but if you just want to go for a good experience like highly recommend.
0: That's the thing about the the airport sequence as well is this is something I was thinking about with when we were talking about Did It One Up Fallout is they really shifted the focus from insane action and relentless stunt work to dynamic Amazing sterling filmmaking. They just yeah. really like those those cracks and crevices, like the Kintsugi, when it's like mm-hmm. you reform the things that you're that are broken with filling the cracks with gold. They filled the cracks with just like cinematic gold. But I think of the scene where uh he's racing to save Ilsa. That that theme that I was talking about, the brr 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 is just mm-hmm. blaring in the background. And I was like, this is movie making at its highest degree yeah. to me. I don't know. And I cannot, It's wonderful.
1: I cannot overstate. This movie did not have a script when it was being yeah.
0: made. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it just, you, it, there's no point where you're like, yeah, this is fluff. It's like, it just, it just, you lock in and you're there from start to finish. So yeah, that's Mission Impossible. directing part one. Part two. We'll see how that goes with the WGA strike and the sag after strike. Obviously, everything going on there is way more important than yeah. Mission Impossible oh God, Dead absolutely. Reckoning Part 2. So solidarity with everyone striking right now. Uh, we're going to move on and uh, just take a, a minute to try to rank the opening themes of Mission Impossible as a series to just kind of close out the episode. So do you want to do this seven to one or you want to just kind of read your list or how do you want to do it? Let's do it seven to one so wh- why don't you go with your your number seven all right my number
1: seven is uh and no shade to my boy michael giacchino but uh mission three mostly because it's so short pretty you know i know that they 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 didn't do the traditional trophy like this is everything that happens in the movie intro and to its detriment that is why it's a number seven
0: when i was watching it to refresh my memory i forgot that it cut off for like kind of comedic effect to mm-hmm. go to the refrigerator and it's like come <laughs> on we're, we're just starting to get hyped up <laughs> So my, my number seven is Mission Impossible Two. I love it. I think it's a really over the top, goofy moment. Like, but in terms of like quality, it's probably my least favorite. Like foray into the theme song work here. Uh, Hans Zimmer, bless him, just going buck wild on the intro. I don't know if the Limp Biscuit version counts as <laughs> as the actual theme song. The long standing cheat code of the Mission Impossible series has been the theme song. Lalo Schifrin composed it in 1966. Uh, and did you know, I didn't know this until I was researching it, but the theme, the rhythm from the theme itself comes from the Morse code mm-hmm. for MI. So it's like, da, da, dit, dit, da, da, dit, dit. So it's got this 5-4 time signature. Mm-hmm. I, I bring this up because that version of the theme song actually charted on the Billboard Top 100 in 1967 at at number 41. Nice. Um, and so the Limp Biscuit one charted on like the hot 100 bubbling up list like it almost made the hot 100 and then like the, the larry mullen jr and adam, adam clayton, clayton version yeah. like the the u2 side project version of mission impossible it peaked at number one number 41 on the billboard hot 100 and then number 19 on the easy listening charts which i think is really funny i don't know if that counts as easy listening but um take a look around spot by limbus get spawned off of the mission impossible to opening theme song and that's that's my long walk around way of saying that's my number seven because it's 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 very it's very it's very dated. It's very guitar centery. I mean, you really can't beat Ethan Hunt like throwing glasses at the camera, but <laughs> uh, you can because there's six ones that are better than that. So. <laughs>
1: This is going to throw you for a loop then, man, because number six is actually going to be Rogue Nation. And it's not for nothing. It's because I remember it the least. I I love that score. I love Joe Kramer's score to that film a lot. But all the other intros to the films are so much more memorable and the themes are so much more memorable
0: than that one. Um, So that's going to be my number six. Um, my, my number six is your number number seven, the Mission Impossible 3, just because of the, the very same reasoning where it's like just when you get into it, it cuts off. So how about your number five? My number five is
1: going to be Mission Impossible 2, which I have grown to love. I worked on the soundtracks for uh, one, two, three, four and six. And I spent a lot of time with Mission Impossible 2, Hans Zimmer's score in that period of time I was working on it and fell in love with it. And uh, I have a very soft spot for it. my number five.
0: My number five is Dead Reckoning Part One, literally because I don't have it fully committed to memory yet. It's memorable to a point, but it's just so new that I I couldn't put it any any higher on the list because it's you can't really be a marching snares component Mm -hmm. to anything. It's just always is going to hype me up. I think the fact that the the scene that leads up to the to the actual theme song did not instantly strike me as memorable. It's a great scene, mm-hmm. but it I had trouble even like recalling it in my memory. I was like, how did it even? When did it even come in in the movie? It'll probably climb the charts as we go, go mm-hmm. along. But right now, five is Dead Reckoning Part One. My number four is Dead Reckoning Part One. It's I think it's great. It it picks up
1: where where Fallout stopped, and I like it, but not as much as Fallout.
0: Mission Impossible 1 is my number number four. The Kiev, did we get it scene where it's just like, I don't know, it's the introduction of the theme into the movies. It's not as bombastic as the rest of them. Uh, Pretty classic, plays it pretty straight, plays the hits. I think that there's a, a much better did we get it version of the the mission impossible theme coming in and that version is higher on my list mission impossible classic but surpassed by a later entry in the series so um my number
1: three is going to be mission impossible ghost protocol like the fuse it's
0: my number three as well
1: amazing no notes love it um no complaints i would watch that opening i think it's the it's the most inventive way of doing the title sequence that's been done in the series to date Though the reason I like the uh, the next two is for more like just emotional goosebumpy reasons.
0: Mine is in the same spot. Michael Cicchino's score here—he's still very much in his like Incredibles bag, so he's still bringing in that like '50s '60s spy component with the with the drums, but slightly modernizing it. Plus, literally letting the iconic Mission Impossible fuse as it spirals through the story we're about to see is like, you can't, you just can't beat it. So my number two is going to be fallout. I love the fallout theme
1: and the um, curtain call at the end as well. Like I, it just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. I think it's incredible. It's, it's one of the most kinetic, especially knowing what the movie is going to be the first time I saw it. And then like revisiting it, it just think seeing like how much stuff happens in that movie and how that, that opening sequence shows it off, you know, it's it's so it's so well executed. I love it so much.
0: My number two is Rogue Nation. It's delayed satisfaction of it's taking place during a mission. So you just get that boom, boom. Boom! Boom! Mm-hmm. Boom! Boom! And it's just prolonging the inevitable hit of that theme at the end. Yeah. Um, to me, it works the best in the opening there. So num- number that's that's my number two. And my number one is number one, my man.
1: I think the, <laughs> uh, nothing will ever beat that dopamine hit of that very first Mission Impossible for me. Call it nostalgia, call it what you will, but I love that. I I think that is so classic and so handsome, and it feels like the only real spy thriller version of it. The rest sure. of them feel like action movies and adventure movies, but that one feels like a true twisted thriller. Um, and I love it so much the way it just cuts and like zooms in and like judders and all that stuff. I just absolutely adore it.
0: You know, it's like, it's the same as with these movies where it's inches of difference between liking these beginnings and these yeah, opening intros. Absolutely. But for me, that moment is perfected in the callback to that moment in fallout. So my number one is fallout with, the wolf blitzer opening when all the mm-hmm. walls fall away, that realization of that it's been a trick the whole time. And then they go back to the do we get it? Do we get it? And it cuts right then to the to the mm-hmm. theme. And that real operatic version with acquire will always win over everything to me in a soundtrack. <laughs> and that's why Duel of the Fates persists. It's just like, <laughs> uh, thank you for doing this, Mo. Thank you yeah, for taking the time. Course, I know of
1: course. I accept the mission next time too. Let me know
0: when you want to do DRP2. Or JR1. <laughs> So yeah, thank you for being here. If you like what you heard today, make sure to follow us at B1N1Pod. Uh, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and follow us on Apple Podcasts. Ring the bell. Give us five stars on Spotify. If you liked our theme music, thank Christian Cremo. He's the man. Thank you to Ethan Hunt for being the living manifestation of destiny. This podcast will self-destruct in five seconds.